1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Queer Talk, a queer podcast that brings you a regular dose of positive news stories and fabulous interviews.
0: Hi. Hi.
2: Today, we're joined by Dr. Nizat Tapasam, who is a British Bengali earth scientist, alumni of Bristol University and Cambridge University, volunteer for Science London advocating for women in STEM, and host of What's on Earth podcast.
1: That was a mouthful, but I think honestly, we should jump straight into the interview. Nuzat, would you like to introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns? I mean, we've got your name down. But yeah, tell us a bit about yourself.
3: Hey, so I am Dr. Nuzat Tabassum, as Mufsin has already mentioned. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. So previously, I was a natural scientist. That's what my undergrad was. And I loved studying the earth so much, I decided to do a PhD on it. Um, so I did a PhD where I studied minerals trapped in diamonds to try and understand what's happening like hundreds and two hundred kilometers below below our feet, but as I was doing my PhD, I became interested in how society and science intersect, especially how you know the link between society and science, and how you know science is not representative of society. Mm. And I wanted to like think like what impact that has on science itself, and I got more and more interested in trying to encourage and trying to make access to science better and and that I became interested in education. So currently I work at the Royal Academy of Engineering within the education policy team to try and encourage access to science and uh, STEM in general.
2: For our listeners I'm going to ask a very very basic question just Mm -hmm. that we're all on the same level playing field here. What is STEM?
3: Okay so STEM is an acronym so it stands for science, technology, engineering and mathematics but it really means like it's like grouping of discipline that's related to mathematics engineering technology and science where science stands for natural sciences so like Mm -hmm. things like physical biological sciences
2: okay and it would be fair for me to say that stem subjects are male dominated subjects and that's kind of why you're interested in it because you want to encourage more women people of color as well to get involved in stem one of the things i wanted to ask you is why is it so important to encourage women to study and work in stem
3: So I think there's many ways to go about this. Ultimately one of the reasons I was interested in encouraging better access to STEM is because ultimately I think everybody has the right to be inspired by everything around them and um, to understand what their potential is and have the freedom to pursue what they, you know, what their heart desires. So like if they look up into the stars and they're fascinated and they want to study astrophysics, I want them to be able to like, like jump into that interest or if they're if they're interested in knowing what makes a volcano or what's happening like Eight hundred kilometers below our feet or how the heart works or how to build machines that like you know makes you travel from like here to another country in like record-breaking speed i want them to be able to embrace that interest and pursue it ultimately that is the reason but we also know like from a more societal and science perspective we also know that diversity always enhances everything for example you have better innovation when you have more perspectives put in you also have like a society that's more cohesive when you have like technology built to like include everyone's needs and everyone's desire so ultimately there's two ways of looking at it but my my main goal is that i want any child that has a question to be able to be able to go forth and like answer it you know i don't want any kind of societal barriers holding them back it should be their choice
0: yeah
2: and you wrote an article for this a few years ago for Gowden magazine and I was wondering what are those difficulties like when it comes to encouraging people of colour, women, LGBTQ people, what are those difficulties?
3: I'm gonna talk a little bit about like why we know there is like underrepresentation. So there's quite a lot of inquiries right now and there are quite a lot of inquiries but there's also like a lack of understanding of the underrepresentation so for example we know that women make up like about half the workforce right but we know in STEM mm-hmm. women only make up like 27% of the workforce in the UK but also like back in 2011 in the last like national survey of LGBTQ people we know that LGBTQ people are underrepresented in professional scientific and tech activities in manufacturing engineering and construction we know that when it comes to certain degrees, like engineering, a representative amount number of like ethnic minorities study engineering. But when you look at the engineering workforce, they're underrepresented. We know that ethnic minorities are underrepresented in science, maths, and uh, tech degrees, and we know that they're also underrepresented in postgrad research. Uh, and we see this in like statistics, like for example, we know that. Only 1% of professors are black. You know, that's not representative of the population. And one of the reasons um, this happens is basically down to sexism, racism, ableism, uh, transphobia... and classism in the science community so but this manifests in different ways so for example we know that ethnic minorities uh, have a worse experience at university so they're less likely to get a first or a 2-1 which is like mandatory to get like certain opportunities they might not be able to fit in with the stem community or they're not accommodated for in their cities or workplaces so for example i think when you uh, pursue a phd you would want to study like a particular niche subject but that niche subject might not be available to study anywhere in the world like particular cities or towns may have universities but then you may not feel comfortable moving to a particular city or town you know that it could be there's more racism or there's more homophobia in that place so you're not able to move as freely as others You may not be offered a same salary, the mentorship or opportunities. You may not be given awards because you're just not valued as your straight, white, able-bodied, middle-class peers. But also I think when it comes to like PhD in academia there's other issues that prevents people from minoritized communities from pursuing it so for example PhDs, PhDs are low paid for an intense amount of work so one of the issues I had was like I struggled a lot financially and a part of me always thought you know I could enjoy life if I just went through to a different route like I had to, I felt like I was putting parts of my life on limbo to pursue this PhD and also like if you come from like a working class background you want to reach financial stability sooner so to like prolong this like financial insecurity it feels claustrophobic and also like post PhD a lot of the positions in science are like fixed term research positions so you're always going to be on a job hunt It it feels really like chaotic to always be like looking for the next move over where you're going to be but also like there's a lot of data that shows like ethnic minorities are less successful in obtaining grants and this could be down to like elitism it could be down to like not affording research experiences that rely on you to like do unpaid labor or low paid labor for example internship also bullying and harass exists in the science community and there's not enough consequences down to to make sure that science community are more inclusive and I think especially when it comes to like LGBTQ communities and also ethnic minorities like I've mentioned earlier that you can't move as as freely to do PhDs in certain topics but sometimes like I think especially in earth sciences you have to do field work and your field work that's mandatory might not be in a place that's safe for you to go so recently like Imperial stopped this mandatory field work to Oman because you are persecuted for being LGBT there but you know previously that was a field work that they did and they didn't think about this they said like oh there was no problem before but that doesn't mean there's problems in the future right but the issues are that a lot of these edi um, circles are dominated by like middle class able-bodied straight cis women and like i've witnessed a lot of like racism and transphobia coming from these women so even when there's, there's supposedly this initiative to try and make it more inclusive that initiative is not inclusive in itself
2: yeah do you want to come back for another episode to talk about white feminism (laughs)
3: oh i would love to (laughs) when it comes to the recruitment part i'm going to focus a little bit more on race because like i said with lgbt there's a, a lack of understanding because there's a lack of survey and data on it and then mm-hmm. when it comes to data, there's also the question of ethics around that data as well. Like how would you collect that data? I think just from like from personal experience, you could see that there's an underrepresentation. So when it comes to like race, it intersects a lot with economic inequality. So sometimes you're talking about race, but sometimes you're talking about class and sometimes you're talking about both. So like when it comes to school, for example, there's a lack of specialized STEM teachers. I think physics has like one of the the least number of specialized teachers. So when you have a lack of specialized teachers, you're you're going to get like possibly a less quality of STEM education. It's also reported that, for example, people from working class background are discouraged from doing STEM. So things like they're persuaded more to doing double science than triple science. And then if you don't do triple science, then some schools say that you can't do STEM A level or you need a particularly higher grade to do STEM A level. There's also like teacher bias. For example so it's shown that teachers would give say worse predicted grades or inaccurate predicted grades to people that are of color and of, to women as well or teachers would kind of sway you know they they would kind of encourage boys to take particular activities that are stem related so schooling itself is one big factor but then there's things like stem capital or science capital so it's kind of like how much you can identify with science so it include things like how much you can see yourself doing science or how much you know a scientist or how much you have access to festivals or museums or universities and outreach project and I think particularly like you know some geographical areas you don't have access to science or if you're like from a working class background you may not have the money to travel to a museum, for example, like rail uh, costs are already expensive, but, you know, taking away the free bus passes for kids, that would impact uh, if a kid can go to Mm. a museum. And another thing is that, It's also the culture around STEM. When it comes to STEM, kids particularly associate science with being really, really smart. So you can be good at science, but you might not identify as being smart. And so you're less likely to do STEM subjects. And this particularly hurts like young girls. So they showed that like, you know, they'll compare girls and boys and then girls are particularly less confident, even if they're equally as abled. So sometimes, you know, you look at physics results and you'll see Like, oh, actually, girls do better at boys than physics. But what happens is that a small number of girls take it and they have to be like particularly confident at physics or align themselves with STEM for them to take it, so they have a higher restriction. So, only particularly smart girls, or particularly when I say smart, I mean like you know, education, like when it comes to education attainment. So, girls with higher prior attainment go into studying, say, something like physics A level, whereas a boy wouldn't have that much restriction if they're choosing to study a STEM subject.
2: That's interesting because there's statistics to say that people of color are less confident to apply for a job they're underqualified for. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. If- and I think another thing about culture is that one thing I think is really powerful is what you visually see. And I think when it comes to science and STEM in general, You only associate a particular type of person to pursue science and become scientists. Like, your image of a scientist is something that's usually quite narrow. It's usually, like, a white middle-aged man with crazy hair who comes from a middle-class background. And even, like, for example, like, which scientists do you study in school? It is mostly going to be, like... The names you hear are going to be, like, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin. I think it's very rare to come across a woman is very rare to come across like an ethnic minority in your school books or in your TV. Even though like, you know, science... Transcends like boundaries, like every culture has done science or does science. But what you see in your book, you only see one type of scientist or you see the history of one type of like history of science. I remember reading a report which was looking at like British Bangladeshi girls pursuing STEM and it was saying that a lot of girls didn't pursue a career in a professional STEM subject is because like they didn't see someone they know. Going into those types of careers, like they wanted to work in like, for example, say like a hair salon or be a midwife. But when asking them, like, do you want to be a scientist? Like they didn't know a scientist. So it's not something they thought about. And like, I look at myself when I was a kid. I remember like in year eight, someone asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? and science and maths were my best subjects but at that age I said like oh I don't think there's any point thinking about what I would be because I'm gonna be a housewife and that's because like my parents they had high aspirations for me they had the typical like you gotta be like my dad wanted me to go to medicine my mom wanted me to go into engineering but every brown woman in my family was more or less at that point were more or less like housewives and I was like that's my future that's my fate so it didn't matter to what my potential was, I define myself by what I saw people I related to becoming.
1: We talk about representation a lot, and I think mm-hmm. you're you're exactly right here in that. If you don't see that, even on the posters and in TV shows and whatever, mm-hmm. then you, you genuinely won't believe that you can do it. I remember mm-hmm. being in high school. We were split for GCSE science into a boys' class and a girls' class. And they told us it was because girls were better at one of them and we were better at another one. And if we were mixed, it would it would have mm-hmm. brought certain people down and would have held people back. So they had us completely separate. I was still in the closet at that point, but I, I only hung around with girls in school. Mm-hmm. So being put in this class, I was reasonably intelligent in school not anymore um which is a real shame but um i was put in his class with with a load of boys and we had to learn and work in groups together and these 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 kids like i hadn't spent time with them i didn't relate to them and it was I say these kids, I was a kid too. It was like, okay. And I remember my, my grades just went down. Yeah, of course. I, di- I didn't feel like I was supposed to be in that room and I didn't feel like I could stand out and I didn't feel like I could show off. And I think that there are so many factors and you think way back to high school, you're like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Like in, in year seven, when you're you know cutting a frog's leg off or something, you don't think you're going to be a scientist one day. It, it is then. And, and I completely agree with you when you just said, you know, wouldn't see any female queer people of color scientists in your books and stuff i mean i couldn't remember any and when you bring up albert einstein isaac newton i'm like oh yeah of course but i couldn't tell you a single queer female or, or person of color scientists that i learned about in school and i think that was the same you know across the board so i guess for you it's amazing to see that you defied the odds of becoming a housewife um <laughs> I, and and look at you now like your your introduction was was lengthy and That's nothing to be, you know, I mean, I appreciate it's a mouthful for Muffstein to to read. So that was that was a bit like, "Mm," but it's so it's so good to see that. And like if you even just you existing and people seeing you and seeing you write an article or or show up to a a talk, people are going to be like, oh, okay, wait, my future could be this. And so so that's really exciting.
3: You touch a good point about queer role models as well because I mean, historically, I mean, I could only think of one queer role model at the top of my head, and that's Alan Turing. And look what happened to him because of his queerness. Like, the, we didn't allow queer scientists to th- thrive. And I think another thing about like representation is that there's not There's not a celebration of the diversity in scientists, or I'm not just talking about ethnicity or gender, but also just, like, the type of person they are or the fact that they might have multifaceted interests. You know, sometimes, like, you're given this impression that if you're interested in science you have to be like submerged into that you can't be another like i think scientists are just shown in this one kind of narrow representation yeah
1: you, you can't be a human as well just mm-hmm. you, you're just a scientist you're just a brain and you are mm-hmm. you're, you're labeled by your accomplishments rather than by <laughs> like you just sat here and spoke to us about one division mm-hmm. and seen you open up and be all excited about that and nerd out a little bit like you're that person too, right? I guess this brings us on to talking more about your queerness and your sexuality. You told us earlier, we had a little chat before recording today, you told us earlier that you came out at 27 years old. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to hear a little bit about that. How did you know that 27 was the right time to come out? You've obviously Mm -hmm. spoken to us about the fact that you were destined to be a housewife. I'm sure there were some other boxes that you were supposed to tick?
3: The reason that I came out at 27, I only really started to question my sexuality more like in my mid-20s. A lot of that has to do with how much heteronormativity I grew up around. So like uh, the first crush I had on a girl that I knew was in university, but the first time I actually like was attracted to women was in my teens. And I think, I had these feelings, but I didn't recognize that these were the same feelings I had towards men. So these feelings were there and I didn't question it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the heteronormity I grew up around. But I was quite fortunate that when I started questioning myself, I was fortunate that the people I opened up to were quite supportive of it. But I was a little, I think it took me a bit of a while because I didn't have a queer community around me so it took me a lot longer to come to this epiphany that I might be bi like I had these feelings but I didn't know like who do I talk to about it And even though I went to a girls' school, there was still, like, a lot of homophobia there. Uh, My friendship group was always on the fringe, so it happened that in my group, the only girls that identified as queer were also my friends, and I was always supportive of them. But I saw how my other friends were homophobic to my other friends. And it was really disappointing. When you witness homophobia by the people that you really care about, you don't really want to put yourself in a position where like, you think they might not accept you. So I think it's something like at the back of my head, like it wasn't a priority for me to question myself. The stories I've always, like, been surrounded by when it comes to attraction and romance, LGBT, it was like, they always knew when they were a kid, or they always, like, questioned themselves as a kid, or they had these attractions when they were a kid, or they had these experiences as a kid. For me to, like, think, oh, I never had these attractions when I was young, I thought I was, you know, you're you're kind of set in your way already, that how could you like question yourself when you're older. So again, I didn't question myself because I I didn't think that your attraction would change through time or like you would have these epiphanies through time. So that's another reason. And like the last reason, I'm gonna say like, I was in a relationship quite early when I went into uni and that lasted six and a half years. So again, I'm not going to question <laughs> during that time I was in the relationship. I never really thought to like question. I realized I had yeah. crushes on other guys And during that relationship, I had attraction to other women, but, you know, I didn't sit myself and think about it because, again, I was in a healthy relationship that I thought was going to be my only relationship. So there was a lot of factors as to, like, why I didn't start to question until I was 25, 26-ish. I really don't know how it came across, uh, like, in my head, other than it was just a sudden me sitting down and thinking, and I'm like, this way, the way that i felt towards this girl i also felt towards the guy that i dated for six and a half years like is that the same feeling like am i also attracted to girls luckily i didn't have any internalized homophobia so luckily it wasn't like an issue to be like oh By it was more like trying to recognize that the two feelings are the same, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so it it took a while, and then the more I thought about it, the easier it became, and like the more I accepted that, oh, I am attracted to girls. Like now, these crushes come a lot more easier, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have Mm -hmm. another girl crush. Like, (laughs) (laughs) the first people I really opened up to were like the people I was dating, and they were really supportive and they were very encouraging for me to explore this. I think once I had that kind of confidence because people were supporting me the next people i opened up to were like other queer women in my life and they were also really supportive and then it was like my close friends and my sisters and then pretty much after my close friends it was on social media because it's really hard to like come out i think um how do you do it do you like make a massive like uh, a yeah. text message group message saying like
2: broadcast <laughs> message to everyone <laughs> <laughs> fyi so, i am by
3: yeah so I I think it was really it was really hard to tell people so what happens now is that people just find out incidentally like they might yeah. come across my tweets or my social media posts.
2: Yeah I just want to touch on a few things that you said because it sounds like you've had a lot of supportive people around you mm-hmm. which is very i say lucky which is great and that's kind of the future that we want for every um, LGBT person. Mm-hmm. While you were talking uh, I was thinking like oh my god like she's going to say her partner was biphobic and her friends rejected her and I'm like I always wait for that moment in the story and'm I'm, I'm actually quite pleasantly surprised that you didn't have that because there was so many barriers each step is a barrier Mm -hmm. and you need supportive people at each step Step. even the first step internalized homophobia that's the barrier within yourself
3: I think especially within the South Asian community that there's a lot of conversation that needs to be held about uh, LGBT and homophobia I think especially within like the Bangladeshi and Pakistani communities so I admit I've been very lucky in terms of like my close friends so most of my close friends are from like ethnic minority backgrounds or from like a Muslim background and sometimes I do wonder like, if I had said this to them five years ago would they have reacted the same way because I think with time a lot of perception has changed. I, I was never religious, uh, but a lot of my friends were in Islamic society in Cambridge University, and a few of those friends found out incidentally through my social media. They they've been like supportive and they've like talked to me. My close friends are all from the majority of them are, like, from Bangladesh, And I told them quite early on. And, again, very supportive. Like, last time I met up with one of my close friends, we were talking about dating life. And, like, he was joking about it. He was like, oh, this girl is so cute. Like, you'd swipe, like, right on her if you saw her. <laughs> so it's, like, nice to be able to, like, joke and have them accept it. But I have to say, like, I- I'll be honest, I'm not not out with everyone. Like my parents, I haven't told them for a couple of reasons. One is because like there's a lot going on and I want to be able to tell them at a time when there's a bit more peace if that makes sense. There's only one thing at a time I can juggle.
1: It takes a long time to find that right moment and and Mm -hmm. I think based on the amount of people we spoke to the moment almost is never right because Mm -hmm. until you actually do it that Mm -hmm. situation will play out a million different ways in your head but Mm -hmm. I appreciate you absolutely need to wait for there to be more peace and to find the right moment. Something I wanted to touch on was this idea of like, I guess loneliness growing up. I I appreciate you had friends, but from an LGBTQ plus perspective, not having anyone to talk to. Like, I definitely resonate with that. One of the Mm -hmm. the reasons we started this whole process and I started the Love of Queers is, like, I went on Facebook and typed in gay Mm -hmm. and found forums and I was speaking to strangers online and just saying, like, wait, how did you tell people? Wait, who did did you know of of other gays around you? And, like, I was so mesmerised by the fact that other people like me existed. That's why, again, this visibility that we're all putting out now is Mm -hmm. so important and the fact that this is rolling out across schools Mm -hmm. um, is so important because even just to know that that potential exists Mm -hmm. and your future can go that
3: way. I was just going to say like I think one of the hardest thing about exploring your sexuality at an older age and I'm not saying like it's easier when you're younger I I really can't compare the experience because you just touched like how lonely it was but one of the things about exploring at an older age. Yeah, it feels very lonely because I feel like there's this expectation that you should have got it all out and done this exploring stage when you're younger. So like for example a lot of people say like at university like they they experimented or there's a society uh, where you can meet like minded people. But it feels a lot harder when you're older because you don't really have this uh, this experimental procedure and I found quite hard to explore the lgbt scene especially as someone who was exploring lgbt spaces that they should be like welcoming and inclusive but i think sometimes some of these groups are exclusionary i feel like they they sometimes practice the same exclusionary practice like the ones that they're excluded from if that makes sense so for example a lot of them are like alcohol based so that could be particularly hard if you, if you don't drink or when i was Dating, I think one of the hardest thing was like, you know, unless you've had a history of being queer, like people are skeptical if you're dating, if you're like a tourist in the LGBT scene. I didn't really have anyone to go to the events with, which is really scary, like to go by myself, it was really scary or trying to like convince people to come with me, they, they might not feel comfortable because they think that they're taking up space. and. Trying to, like, go out of, outside your comfort space is really hard anyway. Trying to explore the LGBT scene by myself was very, very hard.
2: I think a lot of queer people do discover themselves later on in life mm-hmm. because we do have heteronormativity, like, enforced upon us. Very different to me because I I think maybe Spencer as well, like, we, me and Spencer knew from a young age that we were gay. That kind of experience that you were talking about at uni and experimenting, mm-hmm. like, I I did do that. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people don't don't do that, mm-hmm. and like you said, harder once you're out there because mm-hmm. you don't have that kind of network anymore, yeah. and then you're coming in from the outside rather than coming in from the inside. We can talk about this forever. Like, why is LGBT space? Not accept- accessible to people for people who are curious, exploring, people who live on the fringes of society. Like, we need to keep making it accessible because I think once you're in it, you know, you've got your community, you've got your chosen family, you've got your network set up. It's quite easy to forget what it was like when you were first trying to explore and you're first trying to get onto the LGBT, you know, whatever it is, the ether of the LGBT life. Because even hearing this, like, I, I i almost feel like I've forgotten what it was like at that age, or not at that, age, at that stage in my life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, it's very important, but I think. Unfortunately, it does happen to a lot of LGBT people because of heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. Damn it, that H word.
3: (laughs) Yeah, there was definitely a lot of heteronormativity growing up. I think especially within the South Asian community. So, for example, like uh, I'm a first generation immigrant. Like my parents moved when I was about one years old. So I grew up more in their culture, for example. So I was submerged in things like bollywood movies for example and bollywood movies though they have like you know a lot of queerness in them it is it still revolves the storyline always revolves around a hetero relationship right (laughs) like the whole aim of your life is to find to to find yourself in a hetero relationship basically these are the messages that they give or like but it's not just bollywood but I, i like i think one of the strange things about this pandemic is that a lot of us are kind of either we've gone back home or like Netflix is releasing a lot of like T V shows from our like childhood and I've been watching some of them again. So I grew up on things like Friends and A Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Sister Sister. And one of the things like I think it's so much more evident now is like uh how heteronormative they are. But even then, you know, the lack of representation of LGBT characters. So, you know, in T V shows there was either no main LGBT characters or they were the punchline of the jokes. Even more reasons where you might have not wanted to identify as LGBT. I think like the pandemic has made me reflect a lot on my childhood because sometimes I'm a bit harsh. I'm like why didn't I why was I not more open to this when I was younger and it's made me realize like of course it was hard to question yourself because look at the way lgbt characters are treated on tv or by your family or like you look at the school that you grew up in there was no conversation about lgbt relationship in school like our sexual health was just based on a hetero relationship i had teachers who were gay so i had uh, teachers who are gay men but i wasn't aware of any teachers who are queer women not in school not in university there was like an absence of queer women in my life life
2: so the idea of heteronormativity being forced upon women has has come up in previous episodes of queer talk and i find it interesting and saddening that this happens a lot to women especially women from south asian communities i was like how do you navigate and negotiate that with your family
3: it's a journey that i'm still kind of going through and i think the journey of like me trying to navigate heteronormativity is quite similar to how I navigate my passion for science because growing up and I know this is a huge generalization not everybody's experience is the same and I'm generalizing my experience so I was just surrounded by heteronormative culture but I think especially like when growing up in a South Asian culture a lot of the thing that's really passed down or like what I witnessed or what I was taught was like you know you have to be like an obedient girl that follows rules you have to be like timid and humble you have to like be very respectful but you, you just have to like stay inside this box Basically, that uh, looks good to everyone. You just have to be like pretty and fit into this expectation. And so, I think the thing is with queerness and with science, you have you have to be curious. You have to be questioning. You have to like put yourself out of your comfort, and out of the box. Like I felt like people were trying to diminish that, and I found it really hard when I got into university, for example, to be able to test different things, to question different things. to see like if I could associate myself with something other than what I've been raised to so it was really hard to navigate queerness and being a scientist because like I felt like I had to unlearn a lot of these expectations that I had growing up like I mean I'm still unlearning it I'm still trying to embrace this curious nature that I have and to like step out what I've been expected to become. The irony of my upbringing was like on one hand And I'm surrounded by, like, heterosexual relationships, like, in Bollywood movies and, like, the relationships i witnessed. But then my upbringing, you know, I had a very female-dominated upbringing. So, for example, like, I'm part of Three Sisters. I have mostly, most of my cousins are women. And, like, even, like, when I go to, like, a lot of South Asian cultural events, all the orthodox ones, they were, like, let into, like, they were gender segregated. So, like... I felt more comfortable being among women and like even my mom she would say things like you know men only want one thing men are the worst men always lie to you and so like I grew up being comfortable with women I've been I grew up don't mingle with with guys but there was this expectation that sometimes like after university, that's supposed to switch, and you're supposed to find the man that you you are supposed to be with. And I find there's this irony within me where, like, even though I grew up being comfortable with women, and grew up to not like men and not to mingle with men and not to trust men, I still find it quite hard to like normalize a relationship with a woman in my uh, in my head. But my previous relationships have been with men, so. I've been like having to try and unlearn all this heteronormativity that's been placed on my head because it was a journey to try and be like, you know what, I might be more comfortable being in a relationship with a woman. Why is it that a heterosexual relationship with a man was a lot more comforting with me despite... The upbringing that I had, but with like Bengali communities, it, it's really tough because while I said I was lucky to have uh, my Bangladesh friends to be supportive, that's one experience. I remember like when I was in Bristol, Bangladesh, I tried to raise the conversation about uh, the Birmingham protests. And saying, like, how can we as Bangladeshis try and talk about uh, homophobia in our community? How can we help the fellow, like, brown LGBT people? And I was just met with, like, okay... To be fair, like a lot of people responded with like, Oh yeah, you know, these people like they're terrible, why are they doing this? But I was also met with a lot of like dismissals or like a lot of attempts at derailing the conversation. They were like, Oh, why is it that brown communities are like reflected this way in the media? Why don't they talk about feminism? like this in the media and i was like hold on that's one conversation you have with your white allies or the like the outside the uh, the Bangladeshi community we're talking within the Bangladeshi community we can see that there are people within our community being homophobic how can we change this how can we have this discussion and i just felt there was a lot of attempt to like silence the conversation that i was having and that made me feel really uncomfortable and like it made me realize like there are certain brown communities that I wouldn't feel comfortable with you know they were saying things like you know what we have to tackle racism first and then naturally uh, everything else will be sorted I was like no you don't pit one against each other that's saying that all the LGBT people in our community are second class to the straight people within our brown communities it's also
2: kind of implying that LGBT people within Bangladeshi communities are fine. Therefore, yeah. the only problem to solve is racism. Yeah. But that's really not the case.
3: Exactly. So I found it really disappointing how they weren't being more receptive to the conversation of tackling homophobia within our culture and it made me a bit scared of like which brown communities would I be welcome to so one of my close friends he was because I was saying like I really want to be involved in work to support British Bangladeshi people especially in London and he said like oh you'll be welcomed and I was like but would I be welcomed I am really afraid if I set up a kind of project to support British Bangladeshi girls to go into STEM I'm kind of scared that if I if the parents find out that I'm queer they might be like I don't want my daughters hanging out if I set up this project I wanted to have a conversation about homophobia and anti blackness as well as like encouraging them to pursue their aspirations so it's easy for him to be like oh you know you'll always be welcome because he's never had the same experience where I've been like silenced for trying to help people like myself within community
1: it's nice to see that your experience is different in that you didn't just come out and you were done and dusted we all know that coming out is not just a one a one-time thing you obviously come out time and time again to different people Mm -hmm. at different stages and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that you come out when you feel safe to you come out to the people who care about you sometimes we have a bad experience sometimes we have good experiences i guess it's nice to see that that's still going on for you it is a long process and obviously the ideal is be is to just be out to everyone and everyone's cool with it and we get on with our lives but it's nice to see you know reality and that it is more difficult for someone like you and especially in terms of you not trying to disturb the peace in your family for those coming out at 27 years old like you did or or considering or questioning their sexuality what kind of advice would you give to those people particularly in the South Asian community
3: this is a tough question because I'm going through the process myself so I don't really have a a clear answer I think what I would say is that embrace this journey and this journey will be full of bumps there will be some tragedies there will be some joyous moments but it's okay there's no right or wrong way of doing this it's i think it will be a bumpy fun ride but i think one advice i always give to people minorities is you know that there is a a network of people that could empathize you in different ways and just find your family and friends so like Go on social media. I think there are a lot of people that put themselves out there on social media because they want to help others in a similar journey. People love helping people. People love building their network, making new friends. Everybody, like, okay, majority of people love making friends. So go out there, like, try and get in touch with people that you feel like you can connect to. Try new things. There are lots of different. I think right now there are a lot of discussions on how to make LGBT spaces more inclusive. There are different organizations and networks out there so try everything. And I know like sometimes it's a little bit scary to do things on your own but you have to put into perspective like the worst thing you could what could happen is maybe like you know you don't really have people to talk to for like 30 minutes or an hour but I think in the grandest scale that's not a long time the best you could do is like you find great connections
1: exactly and you you have done exactly that this is this is what we wanted to do with queer talk we wanted to expand what we were doing and actually talk to people and especially people like you and as a fellow podcaster i appreciate you've you've done this with what on earth and what made you decide to use podcasting as a means to communicate with others have you have you been able to share stories and find more people you know find your community
3: Oh, definitely. I think one of the reasons uh, I wanted to start What on Earth with my friend Jasmine Scarlett was because I've noticed that I think especially minorities, LGBTQ, ethnic minority, um, working class people, when they are trying to be visible, sometimes they get pigeonholed as like the ambassador for their identity. And you'll see that sometimes there are like greats. STEM researchers out there, but they're only known for a lot of the equality, diversity, inclusivity work that they do, and rarely for the the science or the research that they do. I met such great people because of our views on how to make science accessible, but I hardly knew what they did. And I realized that this was the case where they're not allowed to shine for their actual science, they're they're only seen as this one identity again. So I wanted to to give a platform where they talk about their research to their heart's content, but also give them a platform where if they wanted to rant something about science, or if they wanted to like share an idea, or if they wanted to just talk about something, that they had a platform where they could speak about it uninterrupted, or interrupted by us. With with (laughs) good questions. So I thought podcasting would be a a great way to be able to like promote and celebrate them. I love
2: that vision because LGBT people obviously we want diversity, inclusion, we want accessibility. You know, we want all of that and we want to advocate for all of that. But we are we also have day jobs and we also have you know stuff that we're interested in. So I love that you've made a podcast to create that space.
1: Absolutely. I think we have one final question for you. This has been a really like unique insight into into stem into more of the south asian community and also into, like i said being in on the journey currently you're not like oh this happened a few years ago like i'm over it now like it's nice to see that as your platform grows and more and more people hear your voice through what's on earth and all of your work expands where do you see yourself moving forward and what's next for you more
3: difficult Cool question so i'm at this like i'm not just experimenting with my I, my sexuality at this stage i'm also exper- uh, experimenting with my career because like i knew as a kid that i loved doing science but i never knew what i wanted to do beyond a phd so right now i'm at this stage where i'm experimenting what career i want so i've tried science and i really enjoy doing science but i also need to recover because i i didn't have such a great experience in my department as i i faced quite a bit of racial harassment there and I have a bit of trauma from that so I really wanted to give myself kind of time to recover from that like I said like I was really interested in encouraging accessibility to science so right now I'm working in education policy and trying to see like do I like education policy is this what I want long term I think what the hardest thing I think when you're a minority is is that sometimes you you feel the pressure to try and help your community and sometimes like I think like, this is this something I really want to do? Because this is what I enjoy doing? And I know I enjoy doing it because Monday is not a pain for me. I look forward to my work. But then sometimes I think like, but am I doing this because I feel like I have a duty to my community? Like do I actually love science? If I am I being held back? Uh so I'm right now trying to explore my career choices and everything I touch upon is upon this like expectation of how life is supposed to go that you're supposed to like experiment and explore in your early 20s and you should you know you should know who you are and be settled by the time you hit your 30s but I think what's great now is that can experiment and change and like shift any point in your life because i think especially during the pandemic you hear a lot of people in the early 20s saying like this is the best year of my life this is like my hot years are being like wasted and you're like no because life does not end after 29 you know there's you can continue exploring and evolving as a person throughout your life like to think that we live for such a long time you know average life expectancy is 75 if you think that all the fun happens before the halfway point that is really depressing so i just want (laughs) to like normalize that actually you can continue changing as a person and just chase what you really love so right now i'm trying to find what i love
2: we can't wait to hear that honestly i really hope life doesn't end at 30 (laughs) you'd be screwed (laughs) if it is you're absolutely right like there's so much pressure on people Mm -hmm. up until that point 30 Mm -hmm. and then after that it's like oh just you know, wither away and do whatever you want but it's like no life is way more interesting if you just keep changing throughout
3: what i've mentioned before is that i kind of grew up with a lot of expectation of how i should have turned out to be and it took a long time for me to unlearn that like for some people they're lucky enough to unlearn it when they're younger i've spoken to like a few of my south asian friends who are women and i found that we're all quite similar stage where we're like you know we're we're becoming a lot more confident we're com- we're becoming a lot more aware of what we want and what we want to do and we've unlearned a lot of these kinds of expectations of us and we're finally being able to like chase what our heart wants different people reach that moment at a different time and i think we should be just able to embrace that there are different lives and it's okay
1: And that, everyone, is the end of episode 26. Thank you so much, Nuzat, for joining us. And thank you to each and every single one of
2: our listeners for listening. Nuzat, so how can we find you and your podcast on social media?
3: So, first of all, I want to say thank you for uh, inviting me to your Mm -hmm. podcast. It was lovely. I've enjoyed listening to it, especially, like, the episodes you've done on LGBTQ history. Like, I've been trying to educate myself, so I really enjoyed that series. If people wanted to find me, so my username is at thensheappears. It's the same for Twitter and Instagram. For my podcast, it's called What on Earth? You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or all of your favourite podcasting app. Uh, but if you wanted to find us on Twitter it's called at what on earth pod
1: amazing lovely so do not forget to let us know that you have listened to this episode on socials we are on instagram at queer underscore talk and on twitter we are queer talk underscore so until next time bye Bye.